Our next speaker, um, it's, it's an incredible pleasure to get to introduce my boss, Dr. Judith Currier, who's the Chief of Infectious Disease at UCLA and well-known to you all. She is the Principal Investigator of the NIH Division of AIDS-sponsored AIDS Clinical Trial Group, leading their global HIV therapeutics agenda. Um, and her personal research interests are focused on optimizing HIV treatment, gender issues in HIV treatment and its complications, and cardiometabolic complications of HIV. It's a pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Courier to talk to us today about new and investigational drugs for HIV treatment. Thank you so much. It's really great to be here and to see so many familiar faces in this space where we haven't been together for two years. Um, so, and thank you, Roger, for that amazing talk. I, I learned so much. I did miss a lot in the last few months. So thank you. So my charge is to provide an update about new and investigational agents on the horizon. Um, and I have received, um, uh, been a, scientific advisor to Merck, so I'm going to give that disclosure. Um, and I'm going to try to talk about some of the advancements in uh, new treatments. And at the end of the talk, hopefully you'll be able to list one or more compounds that are in advanced stages of development. So I'm going to talk about recently approved drugs, long-acting cabotegravir and rilpivirine, just what's new about them. And then I'm going to focus on, on, on four other areas um, that are listed on the slide. And I think just to remind everybody of the current guidelines for initial treatment are really integrase-based. Um, single tablet regimens uh, are the way, the way to go, and we have a lot of good evidence to support them uh, for use as initial therapy. Um, but there is interest in, in having alternatives and particularly to having long-acting treatments that can uh, take away the need for daily pill-taking. So I think you're all aware that long-acting cabotegravir and rilpivirine were approved for use um, for people with viral suppression and no prior resistance um, to the integrase or NNRTIs and a four-week dosing schedule back in January of 2021. In this year, back in February, they expanded the approval to allow every two-month dosing after initial dosing at uh, one-month interval for, for three doses. Um, so this has really been transformative in terms of a, a new option. And having started my first uh, patient on this yesterday, you know, for this person, it was it was an incredible moment where she had waited so long to not have to take a pill every day. And for some people, the act of taking a pill every day is, has an emotional attachment to it. And being able to feel like she could live her life without taking a pill, it was, it, I did not appreciate how much it, it could mean. So that was, it was really good timing with this talk to see actually somebody getting their first dose. Um, and so it was approved both for the oral formulation for a, a run-in period, but also to be able to directly inject for people, this is, this is for people who are suppressed without the oral lead-in. But the problem has been, and we've faced this in our clinic, the rollout of this has been really challenging in clinic settings. And love to hear in the Q&A any positive experiences that any of you are having, because the, the drug has to be purchased before it can be 
given. And if you're not a pharmacy, including agent, you know, if your clinic doesn't have a pharmacy, then this issue of getting it outside and bringing it into the clinic to inject is, is complicated, at least in a bureaucratic institutions, it's complicated. But so models of how to deliver this are really needed to be able to um, offer this to people for whom it's a good option. Um, and then just in terms of new data, I think, you know, the data to support the every eight week dosing um, in, has been updated. So I'll share that with you. Um, so this study Atlas 2M was um, designed to look at comparing every eight week injections with every four week injections in people who are already suppressed. And we, I think previously the data had been shown of 48 and 96 weeks and just, we just keep getting more data. So I'm going to show that study design to you here. So these are people who are already suppressed on treatment. Um, if they were already receiving the long-acting uh, cabotegravir and rilpivirine, they did not switch back to oral. Um, and then they were randomized to either go on the higher dose, 600 milligrams of cabotegravir, 900 of rilpivirine every eight weeks, or stay on the standard four-week dose. And they were followed out to 152 weeks. Um, and the primary endpoint for the study initially was uh, viral HIV RNA, um, at week 48, and then they also looked at week 152. And so the idea of the study was how well, how effective is it and how well tolerated is it? And so in terms of the virologic outcomes, which are shown on this slide, the Q8 week um, intent to treat analysis are in the blue and the um, Q4 week is in the orange. And then the um, uh, the per protocol in the green and purple. So you can see that overall virologic success was, was very high, but it's not 100%, okay? So that, that's just something to keep in mind. It's not 100%, nothing's 100%. Um, and then looking at, there were some participants who had, um, an, who failed to have virologic suppression, who had evidence of resistance. Um, and these uh, participants had both subtype B and subtype A. Um, and overall, the, um, uh, the rates are low, but there is a risk if you don't suppress with this that you can develop uh, some integrase resistance. So I think it's important. Um, it, there's not a significant difference between the four-week four and eight-week, but it's numerically a little bit lower for the Q8 week. So I think it's important that you make sure people are suppressed before they get switched to this eight-week uh, dosing interval. In terms of the um, participant satisfaction and um, injection site reactions, you can see about 16% of the Q8 week and 11% of the Q4 week. Again, you're getting the injection less frequently, so it's going to be when you have them, they're going to be less, less often. Very rare for these to be grade three, meaning that you have to take something or it causes you to have to um, do something about the, the pain. They usually last about three days um, and very few people, two in the Q8 week arm and three in the Q4 actually stopped participating because of these reactions. So um, the, the thing that I think has been so telling about these studies is the patient reported outcomes that are being collected and the total mean scores for participant satisfaction improved significantly in both groups. And I think just in my own experience, I think clinicians underestimate 
the potential benefit of this treatment for patients. And it's very important to ask people whether if they are eligible, if this is something that they would consider. I think sometimes they're surprised by the answers, but it's impossible to predict because a lot of people also say, I don't want to have to come here to the clinic any more often. I come twice a year, once a year, uh, you know, thank you, but no, thank you. <laughs> All right. So I think the big hope for long acting uh, therapies, and, and this one in particular, has been whether it's going to be an option for people who've had challenges with adherence. And as you know, that's not the population that it's approved for right now. First, you have to be virologically suppressed. And in the AIDS clinical trials group, we have been trying to conduct a study to answer this question in people with adherence challenges, people who've been out of care or not fully suppressed. And this is a study called Latitude or ACTG 5359. Dr. Landovitz is one of the co-chairs of the study. And they aim to recruit people who have prior history of, of not being suppressed, bring them into care, and, and offer them an construct an oral regimen initially to get them suppressed. And the way that the study is designed is to provide a lot of support to the participants, including um, uh, cash incentives for meeting virologic uh, responses. So as the viral load goes down, they get what are called conditional um, economic incentives. And then if they're, once they get suppressed, they get randomized to staying on that oral therapy or going on the um, long-acting cabotegravir. Now, the study is recently being modified to shorten the time that they have to be suppressed before they can be randomized and um, taking away some of the complexity. But I think we're really trying to get the message out about the study because to expand the use of this to people who've been previously not suppressed, we really need, we need more data. Um, there are some other, there have been some observational studies at looking at people who had no option to take an oral agent or had very limited uh, ability to do that, going directly to um, long-acting cabotegravir off-label. Um, and, you know, I think we really need to see, I think there's a concern about how effective that's going to be and the risk of resistance and the consequences of it for this major class of drugs, I think is something that is concerned to everybody. But Clearly progress in new agents in terms of these being available, but more implementation work needs to be done. Okay, so drugs on the horizon. Well, the first one is a Slatrevir, which um, has been a lot of excitement about this oral drug. Um, it's a nucleoside reverse transcriptase translocation inhibitor. So it um, inhibits translocation and delays chain termination, kind of has two mechanisms to inhibit re viral replication. And it um, was being developed both for prevention and for treatment at the same time. It's also been combined into a single tablet with duraverine. And it has an intracellular half-life of 128 hours. So it's being studied uh, both as a daily agent, once weekly, um, and even once monthly for, for different, um, for both in for both treatment or prevention, once monthly for prevention. And they're also working on developing an implant. It's really hard to keep these drugs straight that are being studied at different doses and different intervals, but this one is, is, is no um, exception, but it's exciting to have that, that kind of flexibility. Um, there's a, a phase two study that was just published on September 1st, been waiting for this data to come out in print, that looked at the um, use of a slatrevir in three different doses, 
combined with duraverine and 3TC initially, compared to the control group of duraverine, uh, 3TC, and tenofovir. So um, the study had first a 24-week dose-ranging uh, comparison, and then in part two, they went down to two drug regimens with the slatrovir and duraverine at the th three different doses compared to the, um, the control. And the, the drug in the uh, sort of traditional safety evaluations appears very safe. The uh, adverse events were rare, um, but they did note in this publication that um, in a post hoc analysis, the mean change from baseline in total lymphocytes appeared lower in the higher doses of aslatrovir. So you can see on the bottom panel of this table, uh, 0.24 in the 0.25 milligram dose, minus 0.13 uh, in the 0.75 and 2.25 milligram doses, as compared to a 0.32 increase in the um, deraverine comparator group. And um, so I'll come back to that, but efficacy was good with all three doses. Um, numerically, I mean, these are not statistically different in these small groups of 30 people in each group, numerically um, highest in the 0.75 milligram group, but not really different um, from and compared to the control. In the combined aslatrovir groups, 81% had a viral load of less than 50 copies. Um, so um, unfortunately, the studies were put on hold or partial hold by the FDA um, back in December of 2021 because of this, um, these observations of decreases in total lymphocyte and CD4 counts in some participants. And this includes the, the prevention studies um, as well as any new treatment studies. They continued to follow some of the participants who have received the drug and they're doing work at Merck to try to address the FDA concerns and see whether there's a pathway forward. Um, but it's, it's, so it's still, you know, still out there and be interesting to hear what, what's learned about the mechanism of this potential uh, toxicity and the way forward for the drug, uh, if a dose could be identified. Okay, so that's Slatrovir, so not going to be available anytime soon. Um, Lenacapavir, on the other hand, might be something that's more, uh, available in our lifetime, or at least in the near future. Um, and this is an HIV capsid inhibitor. We've been really watching this drug develop um, over the last several years, and it's exciting because it's a whole new mechanism of action. So it will retain activity against drugs that might be resistant to other drugs that we have right now. And we don't really have many good options for people uh, with multidrug resistant HIV. Um, so that um, the half-life of this drug, it's also being developed in different formulations, um, in an oral formulation and a sub-Q formulation that can be given every six months. So one shot every six months sub-Q. Um, and so it, it, I think what's interesting is how you develop regimens that have drugs that have different um, different dosing intervals, but I think for prevention, that's exciting. And, and Dr. Landowitz will talk more about that later. Um, but, and for treatment, I think it offers some exciting options. So there are two studies I'm going to talk about. The first one is called Calibrate, which is in people who are treatment naive. And this looked at lenacapavir at a six-month dosing interval sub-Q, combined either initially with FTC-TAF, um, compared to lenacapavir 50 milligrams orally daily along with FTC-TAF 
And then after um, the initial 28 weeks, the two groups that were on the sub-Q either went on lenacapavir uh, with TAF, just a two-drug regimen, or lenacapavir with bictegravir as a single agent um, uh, daily. So it's really trying to look at a lot of different things in the same study and, and get some early data on the, this is a phase two study, on the outcomes of these different uh, dosing intervals. So the primary outcome for the study is proportion with viral load less than 50 copies at week 54. So the um, next slide shows the sort of traditional snapshot analysis of viral load less than 50 uh, in the four different groups. And you can see that um, in each of the groups, 90% uh, of those who got the sub-Q with FTC TAF, 85% who got sub-Q with FTC TAF, uh, and then later switched to Bictegravir, and then the, the daily dosing, 85%, and then the control group of Bictegravir, TAF, FTC, 92%. So really good responses in all the groups. Um, and basically, in this sort of all the lenacapavir uh, participants together, 88% uh, maintained virologic suppression at week 54. Um, and so that, and of those who were suppressed at week 28, 93% maintain that suppression. So these are <clears throat> good rates of, of response in people who are treatment naive. Now, there were some uh, cases of lenacapavir resistance that emerged in people who didn't fully suppress, 1.5% uh, of the participants. One who received the sub-Q lenacapavir with FTC TAF and then switched to Bictegravir, and one who um, received the, the same the same dosing, the um, PO, actually the daily dosing, also developed um, resistance. Now, interestingly, both of these participants later suppressed when they were switched to an integrase and to NRTI regimen. Um, but this is a concern about this drug is the, the risk of, of resistance. It was very well tolerated in terms of safety. There are no grade three or four adverse events. Um, and the most common in the um, sub-Q versus the PO, uh, rates of nausea, diarrhea, and vomiting were about the same. Injection site reactions, <clears throat> like we're seeing with the IM in cabotegravir, relpivirine about 15% after the first reaction, but they were mostly very mild and only three people discontinued due to injection site reactions. So um, this is exciting as a potential option uh, for, for treatment. Um, this is for initial treatment. And you can imagine for people who are already suppressed, it might offer something. Now, what about the other group, people who have multidrug resistant HIV? There's another study called Capella. And I just figured out this morning that they both start with CAP because it's Lena Capavir. <laughs> Took me a while. Um, but they, um, this study um, was done basically trying to look at um, the activity of the drug and, and this new paradigm for approving new drugs for people who had limited options that the FDA has developed allows you to add a single drug to a failing regimen for a short period of time to get some virologic activity and then quickly add additional medication. So um, for people who were had viral load over 400 and had been on more than resistance to more than two agents from three of the four classes and had less than or equal to two fully active drugs, this is kind of a complicated um, algorithm, um, they came into the study 
had this screening viral load, and then they repeated it because sometimes what happens is that people with who've been had um, circulating virus are not fully suppressed. They start taking their meds more when they come into study, and then they come into screen, and all of a sudden they're now they're undetectable. So they they broke them into two groups, um, they randomized those who um, had a decline of less than 0.5 logs from the pre-screening, so they were clearly persistently. Uh, viremic to get this 14-day um, functional monotherapy, either with lenacaprevir added or nothing, and then everybody was switched over uh, to lenacaprevir in follow-up. So um, in the randomized comparison, so these are the people for those first, um, the first period, they, they saw good responses in, in both groups, the delayed and the immediate use of lenacaprevir, um, and both in viral load less than 50 copies and less than 200. And then um, as you would expect, people who had more than one active background agent on the right side of the slide, um, those who had two or more, 94% were suppressed. So that, that's pretty remarkable for a group of people with multidrug resistant HIV to get to 94%. Um, and even the 79% with those who only had one active agent and 67% for those who had no active agents. Um, they did see some resistance in four people um, after the, through the first 26 weeks, but none thereafter. And all the people who developed resistance had no fully active agents in their back, background. So that would be expected. They would have the highest risk of being exposed to monotherapy. Excitingly, the, the median CD4 increase was 52 cells in, uh, in or 82, 83 cells at 52 weeks, which is a big increase uh, to see. And the incidence of maintaining a CD4 less than 50 decreased from 22% at baseline to 3% at week 52. So bringing people up out of that real danger zone. And then the, per, the incidence of a or proportion of a CD4 greater than 200 also increased from 25% to 60%. Again, injection site reactions were very mild um, and a few had nodules and one patient discontinued. So overall, I think this is an exciting um, drug, and it was put on clinical hold back in December of last year due to a potential concern for a compatibility issue between the drug and the vials that were made of borosilicate. The FDA provided, or Gilead provided an update, and the hold was of how they were going to deal with that and, and how the drug was going to be um, packaged, and the hold was released in May. And in June, um, the, uh, in June, a new drug application for lenacapavir was submitted to the FDA in the U.S. And outside the U.S., uh, in Europe, in the EU, uh, this drug was approved for use as twice, uh, twice yearly in people with limited treatment options. So that's already begun to um, become available outside the U.S. So that's an exciting development. Um, just a couple words about uh, another earlier drug, the uh, GSK maturation inhibitor. Maturation inhibitors have been tried before. They prevent the proteolytic cleavage of specific portions of the GAG protein, and that prevents the processing of the GAG polyprotein sort of in late stages of replication. And one of the big challenges to this class of drugs is the pre-existing resistance that can, can um, exist. Um, and trying to get around that um, 
GSK has pr- developed this new um, maturation inhibitor. They, um, this drug's been studied. Initially, there was a study that was done in a 10-day exposure of monotherapy at three different doses, a low dose of 10 milligrams and a high dose of 200 milligrams. And people were then started on combination therapy. Um, there was resistance seen, and I'll show you that data. They quickly amended the study to shorten the period to seven days of monotherapy, and they expanded the doses that were being tested to include 40, 80, and 140 milligrams, and I'll show you these results. Um, so these are all of the participants from the two parts of the study summarized in one slide. Um, again, this is a, as many early stage phase two studies, predominantly enrolled men um, who were predominantly white and um, had an average viral load of about four and a half logs. In the part one, you can see the, um, the 10 milligram dose um, didn't really have any activity, um, but the the higher dose, the 200 milligram dose did. Um, And then you can see the dose effects of the other three on the right, the 140 milligram, 80 and 40, um, all showing virologic suppression. The viral rebound that was seen in the first part of the study, remember they went to 10 days, um, they found resistance in, um, in several of the participants, four of the six participants who received the 200 milligram dose. So those are the ones who are responding where the resistance emerged. Um, no resistance in the group that didn't respond, which is not surprising. And then no resistance was developed, was uh, detected in the second part of the study. So um, this drug appears to have activity honing in on the right dose, not a lot of adverse events, and they're continuing to evaluate 100 milligrams, 150, and 200 um, in combination with, NNR, with NRTIs in phase two. This is a list of uh, the studies Domino and Dynamic that are going on to further evaluate this as a, a treatment option. Um, and we'll see where this goes and, and whether it, it makes it through uh, to phase three. The final kind of class of, we don't think of these as drugs, but we should. Um, And these are neutralizing antibodies against HIV. There's a a panoply of antibodies that are in development, um, both for prevention and for treatment. I think the experience that clinicians have had with monoclonal antibodies during COVID has made us more familiar with this class of agent and thinking about them as actual treatments. Um, but this is really an exciting um, area of, develop, of development using an immune-based treatment um, that can be given. These antibodies can be manufactured to have long half-life, so they could be given as infrequently as, as every six months and even potentially longer. Um, Just a few studies that are going on. We just completed a trial in the ACTG looking at long-acting cabotegravir together with a long-acting neutralizing antibody, BRCO7LS, as in people who are suppressed. So those results should be coming soon. And we just opened a trial that's looking at two broadly neutralizing antibodies together to prevent viral relapse after discontinuation of oral ART. So this is replacing the oral drugs with the um, long-acting antibodies. And then there's a tri-specific antibody that's also in development. And then finally, there's a phase one study that Gilead is doing with the BNC 117 LS in people who are virologically suppressed. So we don't think about these as drugs the way we think about 
other agents, but I think we need to start thinking about them as drugs because they may have a role in treatment. So, um, you know, I hope that uh, I didn't really talk about simplified regimens to drug regimens, but I, I hope that the um, my comments have helped to sort of show we're making some progress in, in new drug development. It feels a little bit slower, I think, than people would like. Um, but long-acting cabotegravir and rolpivirine are here, and now we need to learn how to use them and figure out if their use can be expanded to broader populations. Um, other populations of interest include postpartum women uh, and, uh, and also whether they might have any utility during pregnancy. Um, and then the new drugs that are coming along, some bumps in the road in the last couple of years with the Slatrevir and Lenacapravir uh, going on hold, but um, Lenacapravir has come off and is, I think, something that we may see as an option, at least initially, for uh, multi-drug resistant treatment. And then you'll hear more about its role for prevention. And then neutralizing antibodies, I think, is something that are on the horizon we all need to start becoming more familiar with. Um, so I thank you for your attention, and I'm happy to take uh, any questions. So have a seat. Thank you, Dr. Courier. It's, it's, it's always a little bit dizzying, at least for me, to keep track of all the new drugs and where they are and what their role might be. So it's really helpful to hear your thoughts and where they fit into our current thinking about where we sort of really have need for improvement in therapies. Um, you know, I, I was, it was really powerful to hear you talk about the experience of giving Cabanuva um, to uh, a, a patient and having it really be um, a game changer for her. Um, what can you just reflect a little bit on what was it that was so attractive to her about this? And I think we, we all sort of minimize it's, its benefit, and perhaps that's that's completely misjudging its 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 attractiveness. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what I was able to take from it experience was to try to appreciate what it's like to take a pill every day and remember why you're taking it and what what it means to be living with HIV and to know the consequences of forgetting to take it or or missing it or losing it or losing your insurance or losing your ability to get your prescription filled or, you know, any, anything like that. And I, I think that it just, people, you know, obviously get used to it and are doing an amazing job of, of, of taking medication, but it, it just, every person is different in terms of how they think about it and, and what that, and, you know, there are some people too, who just have trouble taking pills. They don't, they gag or they have difficulty swallowing or they, you know, they just don't, like taking pills. So I think to be freed of that burden of having to carry your pills with you, if you travel, you know, for work or other things, to always make sure that you have them there and to know that you can go somewhere and get the shot and you don't have to come back for two months, you know, then on during that two month time, it's like you don't have HIV anymore. That was the, I think that was the sense that I got was it was going to feel like I don't have this anymore. Um, just stay on the topic of cabotegravir and rilpivirine, um, which I think has just been so much in our conversations as we try and figure out how to optimally use it. Um, you know, the, the, the guidelines for its use, even when you're trying to give it every two months, say that you could give it, um, even if someone is late out to 
12 weeks between doses. Do you think we're, you know, given the non-zero failure rate, even at four or eight weeks, um, if we start doing that with any regularity, are we setting ourselves up for failure with resistance? Yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of, uh, you know, obviously you have to come up with guidance for what to do when things happen that are going to happen. Like somebody, you know, the, the clinic is closed or the drug supply doesn't, you're, you know, you got to buy, they have to, we have to get the medication has to get to the clinic, like stuff happens. So I don't know that the recommendation that you can go to 12 weeks was thought to be an optimal thing. I think it, it's, you know, it's like saying, <laughs> can I stay up late every night? (laughs) You know, I think you have to just be able to, I think trying to stay on the eight week. And I think there's some evidence that eight weeks may be not quite as good as four weeks. So I, you know, I think it's uh, individualizing, but I wouldn't try to make that uh, exception the rule. I I completely agree. I think we should not assume that that should be our default to accept that. And, you know, how have you thought about using this oral lead-in, which is optional, you know, in the in the prescribing information and what role do you think it has with people who, you know, sort of are struggling with pills and to make them sort of have this additional one month of an oral? Yeah, I think for people who've had um, any kind of reactions or toxicity with other medications, they might want to do that. It's just a test to make sure that they tolerate it. I mean, obviously there might be a slight difference in how you tolerate something that you get a shot, then you take a pill. But I think, you know, that, that might just give people uh, reassurance that, okay, I'm not going to have a rash or I'm not going to have any kind of problem with this. And I, I want to sort of step into it slowly. And then there are other people who have been waiting for this and they just can't wait and they just want to get in. They just want to go and they're, they're just want to go and do it. So it's an individual decision. I, I, I don't try to put my, <laughs> I don't have a strong opinion that there's a a huge benefit to the oral lead-in, but I think it makes sense in some cases. And, you know, you were very clear that we, this is only regulatorily approved. We only have rigorous data for people who have not failed a previous first-line regimen that are currently undetectable. Um, And and, uh, how, do you have a set number of months in your mind that you would like to see somebody be undetectable on a a more conventional regimen before you would think about switching them or is a moment of undetectability enough? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the studies that, um, that support it required at least six months, you would know probably better than me. Um, so that's kind of what I've used. If if somebody was newly diagnosed and starting on treatment, I'd want to wait that long, um, before doing it. So yeah. So I, I think that at least six months. Probably longer. <laughs> I mean, I think that's the general guidance. Um, and, you know, did you want to comment at all? I think a lot of us who have been thinking about how to use this long acting regimen um, most advantageously sort of read with interest, you know, a recent paper in CID that was um, a, a small cohort where cabrilpivirine was given to viremic people. And, you know, there was a fairly high success rate in this fairly small cohort. I think. We have some examples in our own clinic where this has been done and it's not been so successful. What, how do, what do, you, do you advise people who are considering sort of going off label with that? Yeah, no, I think that was, an, you know, I think it's important that, that people share the, these experiences and we learn from them. And I think in that setting, you know, these were people who really had just very limited options. And it was, you know, it's, it's always got a, there's just a cost benefit to every decision. And if you 
don't think you can get somebody suppressed with the oral regimen. I know sometimes you have to do things that you're trying to save their life, um, but I wouldn't do it as a regular practice until we have more evidence. Uh, I, I do think that what we're learning in trying to um, do studies in people who have a history of not being able to be suppressed on oral agents, that our strategy can't require that they be suppressed on oral agents because that's the problem. So we got to find out another way to deal with this. And it, and it may be that we have to just, you know, head into giving um, the new agent um, like something like lenacaprevir or other things that they wouldn't be resistant to um, without making them first be suppressed with an oral agent. We're trying everything we can, but it may be that we need to, um, we need to, just try something else because that's been very hard to do. And, and we had a question from the audience uh, um, to just to be 100% clear, the latitude 5359 study does not permit for um, giving injectable to people who are currently firemic. Right. They have to become suppressed. I mean, here, it's kind of ironic. I'm sitting up here with the person who knows more about long-acting cabotegravir than anyone in the world trying to answer the question. So maybe I should start asking you the question. <laughs> no, no, Yes, no, no, that no. study is for people who are, who are um, yes, they have to first get suppressed before they get the long-acting. Um, so, uh, you know, sort of merging a topic that we had in our last talk from by Dr. Badimo and yours, um, are is there any indication that if someone got monkeypox, there's any propensity for loss of virologic control for someone who's otherwise doing well on ART, or would there be any plausibility to why? I think the only um, the only real interaction I would worry about there is if they had oral lesions and they couldn't take their pills, then the act of having them oral having monkeypox would be something that could lead to loss of viral suppression, but it would be through lack of being able to, to take their regular medications. I don't see how the two viruses could, would interact to make the drugs not work. Um, and that was a great, great update about monkeypox. Um, Judy, could you talk a little bit about, you know, you, know, you presented some really interesting and hot off the press data about Lena Kampavir, um, but I, I think we're all sort of struggling with is it going to be particularly useful in treatment unless there's something equally long acting to pair it with? And, you know, what do you see as sort of potential ways to use it? Yeah, I think for treatment, this question of the, we call like an asymmetric regimen where one of the medications is given every six months and the other one is given every day. Um, I, I think it's going to, you know, it, it's going to depend. I mean, one of the things we haven't seen yet with lenacapavir is, is there weight increases? Do people develop weight gain on the drug? Uh, what are the metabolic effects of the drug? So there may be people who are suppressed on agents that would switch to this and would be happy to do that if they thought it would help mitigate um, some of these other issues. So in and of itself, if you're going to take a pill every day, you know, one, one of the medications being a shot and the other a pill may, may not be um, as uh, attractive, but there may be some nuances to that. And I'm looking forward to your comments about its use in prevention this afternoon. And one last question. Um, uh, you know, you mentioned that we, you're sort of pushing us to begin thinking about these broadly neutralizing antibodies more in the way that we think about more conventional small molecule ARVs. You know, where, where do you see these sort of fitting into our armamentarium? Because we, we have such good options 
currently with pill-based treatment and we're sort of progressing with these injectable treatments, do you envision a partnership that will combine a small molecule and a BNAB or is there going to be BNAB yeah, I mean, yeah, no, I think lenacapavir and a BNAB would be a twice a year regiment that you could give. Um, and that would be attractive to people to get treatment, you know, get an infusion and an injection twice a year. So I think that there could be some interesting uh, combinations that would reduce, the, you know, a lot of people that I've talked to the, about long acting are like, you know, let me know when it's six months, not two months or four months, but, you know, I might be thinking about it if it's six months. So um, I think there's some options there. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Courier. That was a great talk.